welcome everybody. Um, welcome back and uh, appreciate everybody being here. We're going to go ahead and get everything started. Uh, it sounds really loud. Can you hear okay? Is it all right? Can you hear? Okay. Um, uh, my name is Tim Lasher and, and uh, I've been given the great uh, honor really to uh, share this with you tonight on miracles and continue on our TBI series. want to remind everybody that if you do have any questions about anything, you can text those in, and we will handle all those at the end of uh, our time here together tonight. And uh, so anything you have, we'll throw it out there. If we know the answer, we'll tell you. If we don't know the answer, we'll find out and tell you next week. That's kind of the way it works. But um, I'll tell you that uh, I'm, I'm really excited about what Wildwood does here and what Brian does through the Bible Institute. Um, this is one of those things that so many people that are strong believers, good believers, um, really work hard to try to understand their faith better and really seek truth. And that's really what we all have to do. And it starts from an early age. And so I wanted to kind of kick our time off here tonight showing you a video of a little child that maybe live inside each, each one of us. told. Allie? Hi, Daddy. Hi. What you doing? Just playing with my dolls. Oh, good. Good. Listen, um, the other day you, you asked questions about babies and stuff. Started sneezing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that now. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. Let me try to explain a few things. what happens. When a man and a woman love each other very much, they get married. And then sometimes they decide to make a baby. Why are there babies? Right, right. Okay, I'm going to get to that. Okay. What a man and a woman do is... No, I mean, I know that the man and the woman have to do something, but why are we born? Why has God put us here? <laughs> because that's what? <laughs> if we all go to heaven when we die, then why does God want us here first? Um, why does God want us here? Yeah, why? 
you. I heard you. Okay, you really want to know why God wants us here first? That's a good question. You see, God is up in heaven, and, well, honey, it's very crowded up there. Yeah, yeah, and and you don't want to be in heaven if it's crowded, right? I mean, remember when we went to Disney World, how crowded that was? Huh? I mean, it was fun, but it was too crowded, right? So God, he sends us down to earth for a little while to ease the heavenly congestion. Are we locked up? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I love that scene. And, you know, I, I taught a class kind of similar to this a couple of years ago at our church, and um, it, was, it, was, it wasn't quite as, as formalized, and we talked about it, and uh, actually had Mike Strauss came, and he spoke the first night for us. And so I was trying to get some feedback from some of the people that had been there, and so I sat down with one of the guys at our church, and we were just having a casual conversation. And I said, hey, um, let me get some feedback from you. How, how did you feel about the class? And, and he says, oh, let me think. And, and, and he said, well, I kinda, it was harder to come back each week. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, I don't know why. And as I, I was listening to him, I was like, I don't think he even realizes I taught the class as I'm asking him this, you know. And he said, well, the guy you had, the science guy, what was his name? I said, Mike Strauss. He goes, he was awesome. I said, good. And uh, I said, anything else, you know, that I, that I can work on maybe next time we do it? And he said, well, those Everybody Loves Raymond clips, those were great. I just wanted to, he goes, now I, I want to start watching that show again. I was like, good. Is there anything in the class? That was said, and, and, you know, and he finally came to me, and he said, I invited a guy from my work to come with me. And when we sat down together uh, at the office the next day after attending each class, he said, we found ourselves talking about it all the time. We were talking about the topics that had come up. And I thought, okay, you threw me a bone. Thanks very much. Other than the other guy that taught and the TV shows we watched, I really appreciate that. But that's really what we're after here. Um, as believers... Or if you are a non-believer, I think in our lives what we have to seek out is truth. In whatever form that comes to us. And we'll never be disappointed because we know as believers that the Bible and the Word of God and Jesus himself is truth. We'll never be disappointed in what we see and what we glean from that. But as we try to share with others, there's so many times that we have that same look on our face. And I'll tell you this, I am living proof that anyone is capable of doing this. I do not have a Ph.D. in anything. I, I don't have a master's in anything. I just pay attention, and I listen to people that are a lot smarter than I am, and I just kind of regurgitate what they've said. So I want you all to know that anyone can do this. All we're really looking at is a cookie jar that is way up on the top shelf, 
And all we're trying to do is take that cookie jar and bring it down to a little reachable place for us so we can all enjoy what's in there. And that's what has meant so much, you know, personally to me in digging into apologetics because um, I saw a video one time and there were, uh, there was a, there's an atheist talk show out of Austin, Texas, of all places, that a gentleman by the name of Matthew Dillahunty hosts. And he has this, it's like public you know, access television, and he has a call-in show. And a gentleman called him one night, and this guy is just, he kind of sounded like a stereotypical Christian. Southern drawl. He goes, let me tell you something about you guys. You keep teaching this kind of stuff. You want to know where you're going? And the guys, they got all upset about it. Now, I'm going to tell you something about Matt Dillahunty. He is a very smart man, and he believes that he was a Christian at one time in his life. Very smart. Knows the Bible. Knows Scripture. And he posed a question to the caller. And the question was a very simple one. He said, why should I believe what you believe? Seems simple enough, right? And he said, why should I believe what you believe? And the guy goes, well, there's hundreds of reasons. And Dillahunty said, give me one. Just give me your best one. And for five minutes, he stuttered and he stammered and he couldn't come up with an answer. Not one that was good. Not one that wasn't, well, the Bible says. And he said, no, 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 you can't start with that. You can't start with the Bible says because I don't believe your Bible. So give me one reason to believe what you believe. And he couldn't come up with the answer. And it really bothered me. And I was kind of mocking the guy, the caller that had called in. And then I went home, and I was driving home, and I thought, okay, Tim, how do you answer the question? Well, there are hundreds of answers to that question. I couldn't answer it. And the next weekend, my wife and I hosted some college kids coming over to our house. They came over to our house. We sat them down, and we were going to watch on Friday night and then Saturday uh, Louis Giglio's Passion Conference. We are going to watch the whole thing. These are solid kids. About a dozen of them came over. And so I wanted to check them out. So I said, hey, you guys all know your Bible. You've been believers for a long time. If somebody asks you, give me one reason to believe what you believe, how would you answer it? And what do you think they did? They looked like Ray Romano. They couldn't come up with an answer. Now, I didn't tell them I didn't have the answer either. I just looked at them judgingly. (laughs) Really? Maybe we have something we need to work on. You know, I was just kind of giving that. Really, I, I, it, was, it was something that internally, as an adult, decades-long believer, I was struggling coming up with answers that seemed to be pretty simple questions. And that's why this is so important. And I don't know what your reasons are for being here and being a part of this, but for most people, it's simple. They just want to have the confidence that they can share their faith and it not be blind faith. And so what we're going to encourage throughout all of this study and all this time is that you seek the truth, and we're going to point you to evidence. Now, evidence is not necessarily proof. Those are two mutually exclusive things of one another. We have evidence for a lot of things, but there's proof for very little in our lives. Other than mathematics and some things in science, we don't have proof for very much. We have observation, we have experimentation, we have all those things and all those scientific disciplines, and we have what we see with our own eyes. But as far as being able to say something that you could, let's say, go to a court of law and prove, it's very difficult to find those things. We live our lives 90% of it without it. 
So we're just going to point to the evidence and let people do with it what they want to do. Because at the end of the day, if, if you are a believer in here, what we're supposed to be doing is just pointing people to the one that can change their lives. The one that can save them and rescue them. Right? That's what we're here to do. And it's very difficult at times when you're dealing with people that are very smart, that don't believe what you believe, and they can sometimes be a little hostile about it. And it's hard for us because we got to be nice. And it's not easy to be nice, especially in our culture today. So I just want to encourage you, go to the evidence, and that is a huge paradigm shift for many, many people out there. Um, so many of the people that hear Christianity, they hear religion, they don't think about evidence-based. They think that it's something very different. They think it's just some blind belief in a God that we don't have evidence for. It changes their way of thinking when you say, no, we have evidence for this. And if you put it up against that, one of the things that Mike showed probably last week in the biblical reliability, and, and, or maybe it was when um, God exists, he showed the chart of the historical documents that we have, uh, the time frame, the time span in between the original events and the earliest uh, documents that we have. You see what the Bible does. There's over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. Some of the, some of the uh, well-documented, well-believed-in antiquity out there is nothing even close to that. So the Bible will never let you down with those things. The other thing that I would say when we're talking to people that are skeptical is if they call themselves a skeptic, a real skeptic is skeptical of their own skepticism. A real skeptic is not just taking the title and saying that what we believe is right because I've got presuppositions about what it is and what you believe is wrong because it's blind faith. A real skeptic should question their own thoughts. They should doubt their own doubts. And that is something that they're not used to hearing either uh, in many, many cases. But tonight we're going to focus on miracles and why we should believe in miracles. And so the first thing we're going to do, we're going to talk about what they are. By definition, what a miracle is. Are they important? Are they possible? Have they occurred? And do they still occur? Sometimes it's hard for us to see miracles we heard about in the past, but to believe that they happen now. So by definition, a miracle is a phenomenon that appears in space-time history that's so radically different from the ordinary operations of nature that its observers are justified in attributing it to the direct intervention of a supernatural agent. That is in the book, I'm glad you asked. Um, and we're going to first talk a little bit about biblical miracles. Biblical miracles, I mean, the Bible is riddled with them. Miracles take place all throughout Scripture. But you might be surprised to know they kind of are clustered. Most of them are clustered into three time frames. Um, in Moses and Joshua and the law, when that was given, when God spoke that uh, through his people there from 1500 to 1300 B.C.E., uh, Elijah, Elisha, and the prophets between 600 and 800, and then um, Christ, the apostles of the New Testament between 30 and 100. And, and by the way, when you see these symbols, CE, I know a lot of times we're used to believers saying BC and AD. Um, when you're talking to someone, and this is uh, you know from a, a witnessing tool and an evangelical tool, um, the book, I'm glad you asked, they decided to use those terms even though they are somewhat secular. And the reason they did that is because they're trying to get 
common ground with the people that they're speaking to. And that's okay. That's not something that should be an obstacle for us. Um, sometimes we find ourselves creating obstacles with people that don't have to be there. And we need to find common ground and wherever that may exist. And Paul was a master at that. When he would go into all the travel and all his missionary journeys, he went to different places. He understood the culture. He understood the people. He understood the gods that they worshipped and the customs of their day. He understood his audience. And so that's why they do that. And so sometimes people have asked about that. But those miracles are clustered in those periods of time. Uh, it doesn't diminish them. It doesn't mean they didn't occur at other times after that. It doesn't mean they don't occur today. But biblically, that's where we found them. Now, Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world. And one of the things that shocks people at times is to hear how many religions exist in the world today. Uh, most of us probably see five or six major religions, and that's kind of what we think of. But uh, there's actually a, I can't remember the exact book. It's the, the Book of World Religions, something, some snappy title like that. Um, and there are over 9,900 documented religions in the world today, 9,900. And of those 9,900, there is only one where your salvation is found through a person. There's only one, Jesus. And that is in Christianity. And it's the only faith that exists. And so miracles are critical to our faith because it lends credibility to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It lends credibility to the God of the Bible. So miracles are critical to it. Now, you can look at other faiths and other religious beliefs, and if they claim miracles, the, the religion doesn't crumble underneath the weight of a miracle not occurring. Case in point, if Muhammad didn't move the mountain, you can still follow the five pillars of the faith and be a Muslim. It doesn't shatter the faith. But in Christianity, without the miracles... All the credibility is gone. And that's one of the areas that we can agree on. That's one of the areas that believers and non-believers alike can believe that. Um, Christianity is the only one that is not uh, performance-based. Um, other religions don't crumble without it. Jesus said it in John 10, verse 25, about the deeds that he did and his works proved who he was. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15, that without the resurrection, our, our faith is futile. There is just no need for it. And we're all just, uh, we're just banging, banging away for no good reason. Um, what's interesting about miracles today, though, is people tend to selectively believe the miracles they feel like believing. And I think you find this really throughout Scripture. People many times will take from Scripture what they want, and they'll apply what they want to apply. Now, um, that's kind of amusing. And I've had conversations with people about this before, and I've asked them straight up, let's start from the very beginning. Do you believe that a being greater than ourselves created the universe as we know it? And I get a positive response. Do you believe in the God of the Bible? I do. Do you believe that his son, Jesus of Nazareth, was immaculately conceived, lived a life, ministered, performed miracles, died on the cross, and rose again for the sins of the world? Yes, I do. They'll buy every bit of that. But then you say, there was a talking donkey in the Old Testament. They're like, that's so stupid. 
No, there wasn't. There was something happened to the guys that were in that fiery furnace that they got out of that. That's I can't believe in that stuff. You know, Jesus changed water to wine. I think science has proved that doesn't happen. They selectively pick and choose what you want. And really, that's a lousy thing to do. You know, it's a lousy thing to try to, and people do it with religions as well. They try to draw from all the different faiths, and then they make one that just suits them just fine. That's a crummy thing to do. It really is. I mean, for us to try to say we're going to create our own religion out of all the different things that are out there, we're going to believe what we choose to believe. We can't take, and I'm going to say this a few times tonight, you cannot take the supernatural element out of miracles. They are, by definition, a supernatural event. And sometimes we recognize them for what they are, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes they're huge things that we never, ever thought would happen, and sometimes they're very small things that happen in our lives, and you know what? We kind of just keep going. We just keep on in our lives, and we don't recognize them all the time for what they are. Um, but one of the things, that, and they, they will say, they'll say, we need proof for these things, and uh, sometimes you have it, and sometimes you don't. Um, again, skeptics and trying to be on common ground with people, H.L. Mencken in 1956, said either Jesus arose from the dead or he didn't. If he did, Christianity is then plausible. If he didn't, then it's sheer nonsense. Um, David Hume, who was a Scottish philosopher um, during the Enlightenment, and Hume is probably the father of skepticism in many ways. Um, there's people today that are preaching about skepticism, about how miracles could not take place, and they go back to Hume's arguments many, many times. Uh, they, sometimes they don't even know it, but this is, this is the guy. Um, he, and one of the things that he said about miracles, whether they're possible, he said, uh, I'll just take, yeah, there it goes, um, that they're not possible because they violate the laws of nature. And it's, that's somewhat of a circular argument that he's making. Um, Miracles do not violate the laws of nature. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. Um, but natural laws don't prescribe what happens. They describe what happens. Natural law does not prescribe what happens. It describes what happens. And some laws in nature supersede other laws. Now, what Hume ended up doing so many times, because there was, and I, I can't, I don't have the time to go into those examples this evening, but so many times uh, healings were taking place back in Hume's day. There were documented, medical documented healings that took place. So what Hume's argument was, that couldn't have been a miracle. There's some sort of an explanation. And if, it, because it violates natural law, and there were no witnesses. And then they would have the witnesses come about. And he would say, well, those witnesses aren't credible. So it just became a very convenient argument with no proof on his side. But if you're looking for proof, once again, with miracles, you're not going to find it. Miracles are the evidence. Miracles are evidence. There's not proof for them because, by definition, they work outside of the natural law of things. Um, the evidence that you find in a miracle is in the results. Um, they're outside the natural realm, unique events that stand out against the background of ordinary occurrences. So if you try to explain them any other way, it doesn't work. 
you're looking for something, it will yield nothing for us to try to say, I need proof that this happened. If you're looking for a natural explanation of a supernatural event, you're going to really be looking a long time and get frustrated. But let me kind of explain how this works. It's kind of like the, if you look at the law of gravity. Um, the law of gravity, we all understand, we all believe. If I have this pen and I'm going to let go of this, what's going to happen with the pen? It's going to fall to the floor, right? So now if I drop it, but I didn't supersede anything. It takes a greater power to supersede the natural law. So, okay, there it goes. So if I catch it, it's not going to hit the ground. Something has interceded and superseded the law of gravity, protecting that from being carried out. Um, another way of looking at that is with an airplane. Gravity pushes things down. If you or I try to flap our arms together and fly, it's not going to work. If you have a jet engine powered strong enough, it will overcome that, and it will lift, and aerodynamics can overtake gravity. Um, one of the examples given in the book was a good one. He said, suppose an alien life form came down to Earth and was in a major city and was watching cars at stoplights. And when the light turned red, they observed that the cars would stop. If it would turn green, the cars would then go. And they thought they had it all figured out. When it turned yellow, that meant it may or may not turn red. Just keep going. Not really. Um, but that's what they do. But then if they come down at another time and they see an ambulance or a police car and they see the light turn red. But the emergency vehicles are allowed to go around that. So they go through the red light, and now they're all confused. It doesn't change what normal activity is when the light turns red or the light is green. It's simply a matter of how they observed it and what they take from that. And special circumstances, and that's what miracles are. They are one-offs. <laughs> miracles are not something that you're going to see take place every single day. We shouldn't see them take place every day. We should see them as special events. And the question is not really whether miracles exist. It's more of, does God exist? Because if one miracle takes place, just one, we have to be open-minded that all miracles are possible. And if there's a God that is active in our universe, and there is a God that works in our everyday lives, we would have to say, if we believe this is the God that did all the things that, we, that he has said he did, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth upholds and lends credibility to those ideas, if he says that, then we know that miracles are, in fact, possible. Um, so we ask ourselves the question, have miracles occurred? Um, that's m more of a historical um, rather than a philosophical question. It's really a matter of the evidence versus the probability. Um, do you believe that the evidence is for it, or do you believe in the odds against it? Um, just as a show of hands, how many of you have, at some time in your life, believed that you have experienced a miracle? Okay. That's roughly half 60% of it, and I'll show you some statistics later. Um, and that's, that's about what you'll find. Um, and... Do you have rational explanations for what happened? 
You can try to find them. But when it's a miracle, it's a miracle. And so we can't look for something that's altogether different. Um, what you want to do for a miracle, if you want to see, you try to qualify it or define it as such, what you have to do is see, does the, does the evidence match up to the events themselves? Does the evidence of what happened match up to the events themselves? And that's how you'll know for sure. Now, the exhibition A, exhibit A, is the resurrection of Jesus. This is the one that everybody is going to try to attack that doesn't believe in the Christian faith. They're going to try to come up with every, and we're going to talk about these a little bit later. But if the resurrection of Jesus occurred, then our faith has validity. And so that's what we're going to take the deepest look into tonight. We're going to look deep into the resurrection and try to find out if we have cause to believe in that. Um, so here is some of the evidence that Jesus gave to support the claims of who he was. Uh, he performed miracles. There's 37 of them recorded in Scripture. Uh, he prophesied and he fulfilled prophecy. Um, he lived a sinful life. Or <laughs> No, that was a different guy. Jesus lived a sinless life, um, and he was resurrected. So ask yourself, did the stories line up? Is what we read in Scripture reflected in nature? Did the claims of Jesus of Nazareth match his life and match his death? There's people that have done a lot of studying on this, um, one of whom is Gary Habermas. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Michigan, and he is known as the leading resurrection uh, scholar in the world today. Um, he was quoted as saying, And all 45 ancient extra-biblical sources validate the historicity of Jesus, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Of those 45 sources, 18 specifically record the resurrection, while an additional 11 uh, more provide relevant facts surrounding that occurrence. Um, what Habermas did, uh, again, trying to understand his audience, he went to some of the most notable skeptics in the United States and some abroad. And he wanted to ask all of them, if I gave you a list of facts that we believe um, occurred about Jesus' resurrection, would you go through them with me and agree or disagree with them, and can we put those together on paper? So that's what he did. And he came up with 12. And these 12 are recognized resurrection facts from non-biblical uh, sources. Now, these were run through skeptics, non-believers. They're very carefully worded. Many of them, uh, and you'll notice that when, when we read through them, many of them um, don't say, yes, we agree with it, because many of them didn't. But they agree to these facts. And the first one is that Jesus died due to crucifixion. Now, if you're ever on Twitter and you follow something and you see somebody saying things that, well, you know, Jesus, you know, he didn't even, there was never even a guy named Jesus that really lived. He's a, he's a mythological person. They're not doing their homework. No reputable scholar, believer or non-believer, doesn't believe that Jesus existed. And virtually all of them will believe that he was, in fact, crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was buried probably in a private tomb. Uh, again, 
the wording is very careful, probably, in, a, in the tomb. Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon afterwards. The disciples had real experiences that they thought were appearances of the risen Christ. As a result, the disciples um, were completely transformed, even to the point of being willing to die for their faith. Uh, the disciples' proclamation of the resurrection began shortly afterwards at a very early date. The disciples' initial resurrection preaching occurred in Jerusalem, where all these events also occurred. And the early gospel message centered on Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, uh, to continue, uh, the Christian church was birthed about the same time, with Sunday being the primary worship day. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, James, Jesus' brother and skeptic during Jesus' life, was converted after he thought he also saw the appearance of the risen Jesus. And a few years later, Saul of Tarsus became a Christian uh, based on a real experience that he thought was an appearance of the risen Christ. Um, no one would argue, believer or none, that the behavior of the disciples changed dramatically after something occurred. The all the evidence that we have, all the documentation that we have, points to this movement of this small band of Jewish converts was over. The leader had died. And the idea was, we're getting out of here. There's something to be said when Peter is denying that he even knew him. There's something to be said that only one disciple showed up at the cross. They were leaving. They had had enough. And even if you don't believe the Bible, something happened that changed their behavior dramatically. It changed their behavior to the point that they were willing to die for something. Now, all of us are maybe willing to die for something we believe in, but you're not willing to die for something that you don't. And for a radical change of behavior like that, something took place that changed these men from saying, I don't even know who he is, or to leave town if they weren't going to deny him to the authorities. Something changed their behavior that they said, no matter what, I'm going to tell everybody I know about him. If they kill me, they kill me. You don't go from being a fearful human being over something into being a courageous person willing to die for something unless you think that happened. There was something that happened that changed their way of thinking. Um, the fact that in this bullet point that the Christian church was birthed and the Sunday being the primary worship day. Um, again, I'll talk about that a little bit more later when we talk about uh, the Jewish converts, but there are even people that lived in modern times um, that held to the resurrection being true. This is a gentleman by the name of Pincus Lapide. He was one of the few New Testament scholars uh, that existed that was a Jewish man. He was one of four at the time that he lived. And Lapide um, was a strong believer in the resurrection of Jesus was a true event. He spoke out about that at all times. The ironic thing about that is he denied Jesus as the Messiah. He said, yes, he was resurrected. But I don't believe he was the Messiah. And that is, in some circles, a very common belief among Jewish people. Um, their argument back to that will be, well, there was other people that were resurrected. 
Bible says Lazarus was resurrected. Yes, only to die again later. The difference is Jesus never died. That's the difference. But in the mind of Pincus Lapide, who was a very intelligent man, he looked at it and he said, there's this small band of Jews, and they said yes to the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. And it was because of the, this small yes led to this large no from the rest of the Jewish people. And because of that no, God opened up his salvation to Gentiles. So you have this small yes, this large no, and God opened it up to everybody else. And Lapid said, but I'm going to heaven. And a Christian asked him why, and he said, because my ability to sin is not nearly as big as God's ability to love me. And that's what you will find within the Jewish community. And I, and I don't mean to offend anyone or anything like that, but if you talk to people that are Jewish and you ask them, it's basically a performance-based deal for them. It's a 5149 proposition. If I pray, if I sing, if I honor God, if I do good work, then God's love is greater than my sin. Now, I wouldn't argue God's love is greater than my sin, but there's always a cost the justice of God demands a cost. And that demanded something miraculous to take place. So that is thoughts from different people on it. Now there's some circumstantial evidence supporting the reality of the resurrection itself. Uh, number one, the disciples died for their beliefs. All 11 of these men had no ulterior motives with nothing to gain and everything to lose. They vehemently agreed with what they saw. Their behavior completely changed to the point that they were willing to die. Skeptics were converted. Hardened critics of Jesus did a 180 upon seeing the resurrected Christ. Key social structure changes. Uh, Jewish social structures provided their identity to the world. Um, they were, God told the Jewish people to be holy as I am holy, to be separate, to be different. They had these customs that many of them still exist today. They're still following these things. If you go on the Sabbath day, if you go over into a, you can't ride, the elevators, the doors are open. You walk into an elevator, it hits every floor in Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Israel to see that. On the Sabbath, you don't push a button. Because if you push a button on the Sabbath, that is starting a fire. And starting a fire is work. And you don't work on the Sabbath. These customs are held true today by Orthodox Jews. The Jews there, the converted Jews, changed everything. They were recognized by the way they behaved, not through the grace of God. Uh, communion and baptism, they realized Jesus' death, Jesus' death turned out to be a cause to celebrate. They got together and celebrated Jesus' gruesome death and raising to life and the growth of the church. Um, the, uh, the social structures... I'm sorry, I keep forgetting to move this thing forward. Um, the Jewish social structures, animal sacrifices ended for the converted Jews. Um, obeying the law of Moses no longer puts you in good standing with God. You imagine going home if you were a Jewish boy and telling your parents that I no longer need to do these things. The law was good. It told me who I was but I'm saved through the grace of what Christ did on the cross. Good luck with that. Monotheism is altered and acknowledging the Trinity. 
And the Messiah was no longer seen as a political military Messiah, but a suffering servant. Um, Now, the Sabbath day moving from Saturday to Sunday, that by itself would be enough evidence. That by itself, for the reasons that I just explained. Um, If you were a Jew in Palestine at this time, this was everything to you. You followed the Sabbath. God let you know how serious he was about it in the Old Testament because what was the punishment for disobeying him on the Sabbath? It was death. He was very serious about it, and people continued to change the day that they worshiped God because of what Christ did. They wanted it to align with the day that Christ was resurrected. Um, So people will, again, skeptically say, we can explain the resurrection. We're going to come up with some theories that say this was not a miracle that took place. Um, Some of these theories, it takes a lot more faith to believe in than to believe it actually happened. Um, These are just a few of many, and you've got some handouts that have some of these in there uh, in the back. You can refer back to those. Um, But... Some popular ones I'm going to talk about through here and and see what you think. And let's put this up against the evidence. Now, evidence as we see it, we need to talk about that for a second. Um, We like proof. Like I said earlier, we don't like just evidence. But if you were in a court of law and you were serving on a jury and there was Let's put it on a linear scale. Zero is not guilty, and ten is guilty. What the prosecutor is going to do is try to provide evidence to move you to a guilty verdict, correct? But unless you were there and saw everything that happened, what do you have to do? You have to take that evidence in and draw a conclusion, right? So if we move this, let's say the prosecutor says, okay, yeah, we got three, four witnesses, and that takes you from zero to five, and hey, there was a stabbing, and the guy was dead on the floor, and he had a knife in his hand, that takes you to seven, and then you got somebody said he's a horrible person, that takes you to eight, but unless you were standing there and saw what happened, there's a gap in that evidence, isn't there? That gap is faith. You're having faith in the evidence. As it exists. Um, If you've ever seen the movie Philadelphia, you remember the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington? And the story of that was that he was an attorney that had been fired by his law firm because he had contracted AIDS. And um, in the deliberation room of the jury, they sat there and they took all the evidence in. And this was a law firm. They did obviously did a great job pleading their case and putting together their defense. And the jury foreman looked at everybody else and he said, look, the one thing that we can agree on is that he was given the most important case that the law firm had ever had. That was part of their defense. We gave him the biggest case we ever had, and their claim was that he blew it. And And the jury foreman said, I can't get past the idea that if he was doing such a poor job and they fired him for a poor performance... Why did they give him the most important case? And that ended up winning the case for the prosecution. And that's how evidence sometimes looks. 
it's not always forensic. Sometimes we have to look at all the things in the ancillary and the corroborative, corroborative evidence for what it looks like. Now, when you hear some of these theories that people have argued against the resurrection, you're going to laugh at some of these things. And what I would challenge you to do, if you, and if you have these handouts, you look at the 12 facts that we know that everybody agrees on, and then you look at the evidence for the resurrection itself, and you put that up against those 12 facts. Now, for, do the same thing with these skeptics that say a miracle didn't take place here, and put those theories up against the facts and see where it lines up and see what's more plausible. There's a, there's a uh, it's kind of a scientific uh, term, Occam's razor. I think Mike said that earlier. Everybody understand? Do you know what Occam's razor is? That you look at all the evidence and the simplest explanation is usually the right one? We can apply that here. So some of the theories are that the tomb was empty. The empty tomb, th tomb theory that it either it was an unknown tomb or they went to the wrong one. Now, we know, again, all the evidence supports that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his family tomb. We know where that, we, we think we know where that is even today. And that's where it was. They, it's very unlikely. And again, you put, and I'm not, I don't have the time to walk through each one of them, but if you look at the 12, you can look at it and go, uh, they lose on five, they lose on number four, they lose on number eight, they lose on number 12. We can't, this, this theory can be shot down when put up against the actual resurrection itself. Then there's the legend theory. This is kind of a popular one because people think that it was just fabricated over time, that the events didn't take place. Well, I got to tell you something, and Mike probably talked about this last week with biblical reliability, but if you don't, if you deny the evidence that we find in Scripture, you have to throw away all of antiquity for all of human history. Because the Bible blows the doors off of other, other disciplines. If you go to a Greek historian and you try to be skeptical of the biblical stories, he will tell you, what is it with you people? Why do you always knock this stuff down? This is good, solid evidence. Because in their department, they don't put it through the same scrutiny. They don't do it. They look at it, and they, they peer review it. They check it out. They look at the culture of the day. They look at the historicity of it. They look at the, the credibility of the writings. They look at the time periods. They look at all those things, but they don't put it through what people put Scripture through. They don't. And, it, and I'm talking about on universities all across the, the world. So the legend theory saying that it was fabricated just doesn't make any sense. Um, the events happened too close. People were preaching it in the neighborhoods. You know, it's real easy for us as we get further away from when these events happen, but the Bible names names. It didn't say some guy took Jesus' body and put it in his own private tomb. It names names. And that's one of the differences in the historicity of Scripture as well. Um, the twin theory. This is one of my favorites. That Jesus had a twin brother. And... It was the twin brother who either was on the cross or appeared later to the disciples. And Mary, in all of the things that were going on when Jesus was born, must have forgotten about the twin. I mean, you, know, you, you can see how, the, I mean, this is a reach. They are 
trying to find anything to discredit this that, and without even realizing this takes more faith to believe this. It's unbelievable. Then there was a hallucination theory that all of the disciples and the 500 people that claim to have seen or that, that Scripture tells us saw Jesus after the resurrection were all hallucinating the same hallucination at the same time. Now, I don't know much, but I know when somebody hallucinates, they don't usually always have the same hallucination. So, again, and, and again, you can walk these down, and academics have done this. They've walked right through these things and said, look, the, the, it misses on this, this, or this. The accepted facts outweigh the theories here. Then there's the um, existential res resurrection theory. I don't know how anybody would try to prove this if you're looking for proof or you're looking for any evidence. The existential resurrection theory says basically Jesus just rose in our hearts. We just think it. It's just what we want to believe, so we say that it's true. There's, I mean, it, that fails on virtually every one of them. Uh, the spiritual resurrection theory, that's another popular one. Actually, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, believe this, that it wasn't a bodily resurrection. It was just a spiritual resurrection. Um, and then we get down to some of them that you can really probably talk about a little bit. Um, the disciples stole the body. Uh, that seems plausible to most people that would look at it. Uh, however... It doesn't make any sense. The disciples would have no reason to steal the body. Um, that was not in their best interest. They were leaving, and they would have had to gotten past Roman guards and rolled a stone back. You couldn't do that if it was night. It was guarded at all times. Again, all the evidence supports that there would be no reason for that. Or that the authorities hid the body. That's even more off the charts because... That, that's the last thing they would want to do is hide the body. If anything, they would have gone out. If they had wanted to take the body from the tomb, they would have taken it out, and they would have shown everybody here, look, he's dead. And that would make their movement even weaker. Um, then there was the swoon theory. Uh, the swoon theory states that Jesus was kind of like in the princess bride. He wasn't dead. He was just mostly dead. And that the cool, coolness of the tomb awakened him. Now, bear in mind, he had about 50 to 70 pounds of spices over his body to eliminate the odor as best they could. Um, the, the records that we have are that uh, the, the, the clothing that he was wrapped in, the linen he was wrapped in, was laying there neatly on the tomb. He was nowhere to be found. And they said, but he just awakened. And he was alive. He was never really dead. Um, then there's something called the Passover plot. This is a good one. This is a good for, the, if you like to watch conspiracy theories on television, you'd like this one. Um, the Passover plot was that it was a massive plot with all of the disciples. And they were going to just act as if he were dead and then take him down on the cross. But the plot was uh, killed when they speared him in the side. Because it actually killed him. And so the conspiracy fell apart. But some people still try to hold to the Passover plot. And then the last one you can see there on that bullet point. This is, this is ironic. Um, Jesus was an alien. Now, if you match all of these thoughts, all of these theories 
up against the 12 known facts, do you know which one scores best? That Jesus was an alien. And I'm not kidding. If you match it up against it, it scores on virtually every account as far as evidence for it, except there's one problem. That means all of us could be aliens, right? And in a sense, Jesus was an alien, right? He came down from a foreign place, and he became human and all that. But, and, I, and, I'm, and Mike could speak into this better than I could. You would not believe how many theories are out there that come from science fiction about the Christian faith. The creation of the universe, they saw it on Star Trek, and somebody went, wow, what if that's possible? And they try to take that, and they try to run with it, and it gets legs, and it gets popular, and people start to talk about those things. And, but, again, none of these holds up to anything. Um, I put this up there. I think Mike showed this last week. I think he showed this picture last week. Um, the Romans were very good at killing people. They were experts at it. Um, and if you weren't here last week and didn't get to see this, this was a, this was a big find um, back, I think it was in, in the late 60s, um, because some people had said crucifixion really wasn't what they thought that it was, and they actually found a bone a heel bone in an ossuary box, um, and they found a nail driven through it. And you can see they even curved the nail back um, uh, to ensure it would go through kind of the back of the heel in that particular form. There were different forms of crucifixion, but that was one that uh, they actually found actual evidence for it. Um, so does anybody hear any of those theories and say to yourself, that could be true? I believe that. What sounds more plausible, that Jesus rose from the dead with all the evidence and all the miracles that he performed, or that he was just mostly dead, or he had a twin brother, or he was a space alien that came down from another planet. You see what happens? The, the, the skepticism all of a sudden should be turned on the skeptic. Um, so do miracles still occur? Um, the answer to that is yes. Some of you all have, have just said you feel like you've experienced a, a miracle. Um, you know, personally, I have. Um, and, but if you look across the world, J.P. Moreland, one of the great apologists, teaches at Biola University. He said a major fa in one of his books called The Kingdom Triangle, he said a major factor in the current revival of the third world, up to 70%, and that's a, that's a Christian revival, obviously, is intimately connected to signs and wonders as expression of the Christian Father God, the Lordship of His Son, and the power of His Spirit and His kingdom. Um, that's happening across the world. Um, there's a, uh, some of the statistics in the United States, just so you'll kind of get an idea of the people here. 51% of adults believe the biblical accounts of miracles. 67% uh, they still occur. Only 15% say no. Young adults are less likely to believe. Okay, boomer, 73% of you do. 61% of the newer, younger generations um, believe. Nearly 95 million people claim a personal miracle experience in the United States. There's a huge part of our population that claim a miracle. 55% of physicians claim that they've seen results in patients that they consider miraculous. Um, this is real life. This isn't something we read about happening to other people. This is real life. 
most physicians will say they've seen something happen. Um, Non-believers, 44% of them don't believe in the supernatural at all. 20% feel modern science rules miracles out. Um, Piggybacking on what J.P. Moreland had to say, uh, Greg Keener, who wrote the most comprehensive book on miracles ever, he was uh, actually writing a commentary on the book of Acts. And while writing that commentary, he looked down and he had 200 pages of footnotes on miracles in Acts. And he said, that might be a book in itself. So he wrote a little thousand-page book about miracles. And it is by far the most comprehensive. And what he said is that some estimate 90% of the growth in the church in China is being fueled by healings. This is especially true in countryside where medical facilities inadequate are, are often inadequate or non-existent. Um, people will try to say that those things don't happen here, but they happen over in poverty-stricken third-world countries where they don't know better. What Keener found, or Keener found, was that they didn't have some of the same medical technology. And they did, even some of the people that were non-believers were acting more like a Christian should, as when Jesus said, come to me like a little child. And they came to him like a little child, believing that a miracle could be done. And miracles have been taking place in many, many places. I have friends that have traveled on mission trips over to Africa, Asia, all over other places, and they will tell you they've seen them firsthand. And I don't have time to go into them tonight, but I promise you that they have said that they take place. Um, so how do you know when you see a miracle? How do we recognize a miracle? A couple of days ago they had, they were playing the, the miracle on ice. And we got to be careful to toss a word around. We don't want to toss it around like a 12-year-old tosses around the word love. But I love him. I had three daughters. I said, no, you didn't. And I don't love him. And the only way you get to date him is if I love him. We throw the word around a lot. Um, I think there's miracles that take place. Maybe the miracle on ice was a miracle. Maybe it was. Maybe it brought the country together. Maybe God had some purpose in something like that. I think he's got bigger fish to fry, but I don't know. Maybe that was it. Um, uh, one of the things that you see in miracles is when multiple people are praying for the same result, sometimes independently of one another. And you see something happen. My wife is amazing at this. My wife used to work at, our, at a church we used to attend. Uh, she worked at English for Second Language somehow. She got involved in that. And she came home one day and she said to me, you know, those ladies, they're, they're kind of up in years, and, and, but they're having a hard time. Some of them are new to America. I need a woman that's probably in her mid-60s or more that can speak like Yugoslavian or something. And I said, honey, bless your heart. You're not going to find a Yugoslavian woman, middle-aged Yugoslavian woman, walking around Norman, Oklahoma. You're not going to find it. I'm sorry. Just good luck to you. Maybe you can find a student that's studying a language of a country that doesn't exist anymore. I don't know. But something was happening. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, she calls me. You're not going to believe what happened. I go, what? She goes, it's like I was in the supermarket, and there was a lady that seemed really nice, and I was talking to her, and she had a foreign accent. I said, where are you from? And she said, Yugoslavia. Oh. 
I'm like, that doesn't happen to me. My mind's not open to that. It happened to her because she was looking for something. She prayed about it, and it happened. And that's how God works. You cannot remove the supernatural impact and what God does in a miracle. You can't remove it. Um, But when believers pray expectantly and specifically, real quick, if you have something that you want to see happen, and you're praying to God that that will happen, make it public. Make it public. You tell people you're praying for that. Because when that happens... You'll have them praying for you. You'll be praying for it. Multiple people will be praying for it. And then if and when it happens, what can you all do with that? Who gets the glory? Our God gets the glory. Um, There's been several medical studies, and I know I've got to wrap this up, Brian, but there's been several medical studies done on this. There was a study called a STEP study, which uh, was a study of therapeutic effects on intercessory prayer done by Harvard many years ago. It's in Strobel's book, The Case for Miracles. Um, He talked about the fact that they put $2.4 million into this study. And that study found that there was no difference at all in the people that were prayed for for their medical conditions improving any more than people that weren't prayed for. But there's been two other studies done as well, and they're really known as the gold standards. And I I can't go into all of that with you, but there was a lot of money spent on it, and they studied it. But you know what they did? They took people that knew the patients, that were believers, and they said, pray for them. And the results were markedly different. And here's something that will probably make you a little bit uneasy, unless you're a charismatic. But one of the things that really raised the percentages of people that were healed was touching. Putting your hands on someone and praying over them. In many ways, the way the Bible tells you. What did it tell you to do when pray for people? The elders come together, and they anoint your head with oil, and you pray over them. And that's what they did, and those people were cured at a higher rate. These are documented medical cases where someone had vision that was 2,400 one day, and the next day it was 2,040. Documented in medical journals. Um, but again, you can never remove God from the equation. Um, and sometimes, really, it doesn't matter what happens or what we see. Sometimes people are going to say, just give me some kind of a sign. I just have to see it. Um, And sometimes you'll get it, and who knows what you'll do with it. Rebecca, if there's anything wrong with my feelings for Dolores, just give me a sign. Meanwhile, I'll put you in the closet. Um, I think we're pretty good about that. I want to close with this real quick. Um, Michael Shermer is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. Um, same, a very similar story. He used to be a Christian, said he, he don't, no longer believes, and he's got to the point where his career is based on skepticism. 
Lee Strobel interviewed him in the first chapter of his book, and he tells a story. He said, is there anything that ever cracked your skepticism a little bit? And he shared this story. Um, he said, there was one time with the transistor radio. And he said, okay, tell me about that. And he said, I'd seen his column in the Scientific American. What attracted me was its subtitle, which read, I just witnessed an event so mysterious that it shook my skepticism. Strobel said, that's rather startling. And Shermer said, yes, I didn't write the subtitle, but I have to admit this incident really rocked me back on my heels. He proceeded to describe how he and his German fiancée, Jennifer, decided to get married at the Beverly Hills Courthouse and then have a celebration at his house. She was feeling pretty bad because she was alone. She had been raised by a single mom and her grandfather, whom she loved like a dad. He passed away when she was 16, and none of her family or friends were there for the wedding. So she was feeling kind of low. Before Jennifer had come to the U.S., she had shipped some personal items ahead. One was a transistor radio from the 1970s that she had a deep sentimental connection to. She and her grandfather would often listen to music from it when they were gardening or simply enjoying time together. I tried to fix the radio before she arrived, Shermer said, but nothing worked. I put new batteries, I checked the wires, I even hit the table, nothing. In the end, it drew back, I threw it at the back of a desk in the bedroom underneath an old fax machine, and it sat there for months. As the family gathered after the wedding, Jennifer said, I really need a moment alone. She was upset and crying. I missed my grandfather so much. I wish he was here. She and her new husband went in the back bedroom, and suddenly they heard music. Beautiful, classical, romantic music. But where was it coming from? I thought, that I leave my cell phone in here? No, it's not the phone. Was it my laptop? No. Was it from the neighbors? No. It seemed like it was coming from the desk, Shermer said. Jennifer shot a look at me, startled, and said, that can't be what I think it is, can it? Then she pulled out the drawer. Somehow the little radio had come on, and right then, with perfect timing, it was serenading Jennifer with music, just like it used to when she was with her grandfather. She sat there st in stunned silence for several minutes, and she said with tears in her eyes, my grandfather is here with me. I'm not alone. I sat mesmerized by the story, Strobel said. It was an emotional incident, Shermer continued. Jennifer felt like, it was, it, like she was connected with her grandfather as if he were right there in the room, right when he needed her the most. The radio played all night and into the next morning, and then it went dead again, and to this day it no longer works. It was the special timing of the event that ran or sent tremors through Shermer's skepticism. What should I make of this, he said to me. What sort of is this sort of, some sort of divine message? Was her grandfather on some other plane letting her know everything was all right on this important day? Was it merely a coincidental electronic anomaly? But if it was, how can it be explained? Why did the radio work for just that brief moment at precisely the right time? It was, well, odd. Did this incident crack an open door for you, he asked. He said, maybe a little bit. He sighed, and then he added, I don't know everything. We don't know everything. Maybe there's another plane. It's possible. This doesn't prove any of that. It just makes you think. We should be humble before the universe. Did you take the radio to the electronics expert to try to find an explanation, I asked? He said, no. This time I just savored the experience more than the explanation. What's important is the emotional meaning it had for Jennifer, and that would be my take-home message about Mary. God works for the believer and even for the unbeliever wanting them to believe. He loves us so much that he's willing to put us through difficulty, which we'll talk about next week, to give us an eternity with him. We can believe in these miracles. So when you... 
Um, when you think about, I don't know what this. Well, I'm just going to go to your question. Um, the uh, the verdict is, if miracles happen, if they are possible, if the resurrection of Jesus is a true historical fact that actually occurred in space and time, then what do we do with that? Shermer just wanted to enjoy the moment and didn't ask for an explanation. We can enjoy our Savior if we'd like. Um, do we have any questions? I'm running out of time. I'm going to do them fast. Okay. Um, isn't it dangerous to encourage people to pray for a miracle for a loved one's healing? If the healing doesn't happen, then the person might turn away from God in anger and doubt. Um, yeah, that's, a f that, that's fair. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're looking for um, a miracle, they don't always happen. Uh, I, I can tell you on th there's three different people that were suffering from cancer at the exact same time in our lives. We were praying equally for all three of them. Two of them are cancer-free today. One passed away. I don't have that answer. What I can tell you, and this will bleed a little bit into next week, is what you can do is simply be there for them, sometimes in silence. Sometimes silence is your best friend. Um, I don't know that I would say it's ever dangerous to pray for something. I think it's dangerous not to. It's dangerous to have an expectation of God to always match our desires. That is the best way I know how to answer that question. And again, that's a great segue into what next week will hold for us because that's, that's a fun one too. Yeah. Why the innocent suffer? Yes. Right. Right. That probably, is probably the number one question that is on people's mind. No doubt. And the number one question that keeps people from the faith. Right. Here's one. Uh, so if miracles have or do occur, why do they have to be attributed to the God of the Bible? Um. I think that when you, when you look at something supernatural, like the, what the, the quote that um, I hope everybody caught on Shermer, he said, sometimes you do what? You sit back and you're humbled before the, he says, the universe. Some people will do just that. They will try to attribute that to the universe. Most people will try to do that. Um, I think that's where, um, for us, uh, you, you, you can attribute it to whatever you want to. You can try to find an answer. You can say it was coincidence. You can say that um, we don't have an explanation, but I think the universe just smiled upon me that day. But the best explanation, going back to Occam's razor, is that if we were praying for something, now I'm assuming that would be for someone that's not really praying to God for a miracle to take place. They just see the miracle, and they don't know what to attribute that to. Um, to me, that's a sad place to be. Uh, because we tend to then find a way to bring it into ourselves somehow. Um, or again, just credit the universe with it. But the, I guess the, the short answer is you don't have to attribute it to God, but you better have a better explanation. And to a degree, Christians have always taken a defensive posture on some of these questions. And if you're going to say that it wasn't the God of the Bible that did it, Ask them to give you a better explanation. Put the onus on them. You're claiming a miracle. You don't believe in the God of the Bible, then where'd the miracle come from? The laws of nature 
we're suspended by something. Give me a better explanation than the creator of the universe. Are the miracle workers, workers like the apostles also in modern history and today? Um, certainly that would be a gift for some people, I believe. Um, I think it's probably abused far too often in, in, the, in the Christian community, quite frankly. I, I think when, when we're doing something for show as opposed to you know, letting God uh, do the work, and at the end of the day, God's doing the work. He's just using someone as a vehicle to, to, to be his point man on something, which is a great honor. But uh, I think that there certainly are healings that take place today, and God is working through his people, but that would be a very special gift that I think that someone has. I think it's been abused horribly in the church. Uh, you were referring to the calendar and the dates of the BCE and CE. What do those stand for? Uh, before the Common Era, era and uh, the Common Era. That's what they, they've gone with. Um, AD, uh, Anno Domini, I think, if it's the Latin term, if I have that right, somebody probably knows better than I do, but that was, was established um, by a monk in the 500s in the 5th century or 6th century um, uh, that meant the Day of Our Lord. Uh, it was just a reference to Christ and B.C. being before Christ. Okay, last one. How should we prove or disprove miracles today? Um, well, again, be careful with the word prove. Um, it, it's, um, I think that you have to align to some of what we talked about. Of did whatever, took, whatever, that, whatever that event was, whatever happened, um, were there people praying for it? Is there, uh, was it something that can be explained in the natural realm somehow? Um, sometimes, and, and a scientist, and again, ask Mike this and check my math, um, but I think science sometimes does a better job of disproving something than it does proving it. Okay? So when you look at it from that angle, um, you're not going to prove a miracle other than the event happened. Now, how it happened is always going to be subject to debate, you know, but so I don't know that you're going to ever be able to prove or disprove. Sometimes it's pretty powerful, and, this, and I'm, not, I'm not backing off of this, but sometimes it's pretty powerful to say, God did that. I believe that. I had a conversation with a girl one time that she said, we're in a building that's haunted by ghosts. I said, you believe in ghosts? She said, I said, I believe in one. He's holy. And, and she said she believed in ghosts. And I said, do you believe in God? She goes, no. I don't know what to do with that. All right. Hey, have you enjoyed it tonight? Has enjoyed Tim tonight? Let's give him a hand. Thank you. Thanks, brother. You can enjoy Ray Romano <laughs> and Steve Martin and all that. So that's good. And we remember you, Tim. Yeah, thank, thank you. you guys. Uh, we'll also have some, some of Mike's books, even though he's, um, he's at the CERN lab uh, uh, right now, and he, he sends his wishes. He just texted me yesterday. He says, tell everybody hi. Uh, pray for him over there. Pray for his safe return. We'd appreciate that. Um, and he's, uh, he's up next. Is he up next with this, the next question? No, uh, the innocent sufferer is next week. And you got that? Uh, I've got that one. All right. And then we are going to start um, teaming up. Some of the topics uh, after that will be 
Uh, we're going to do a half hour on a couple of the topics. They don't quite take as long to cover. So, um, but next week we'll be doing why the innocent suffer. So if you want to come back and come back bring and somebody with you, uh, that's a great question. Also, we will have some, some of Mike's books still here. We still have a few of those left. If you want one of those, Sherry will be up here to help you with that. So let's, let's uh, wrap up and close in prayer. God, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, to making yourself known. Even that, uh, in my mind, is a miracle. Um, that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, um, wants to know me and love me so much that um, he provided a way for me to know him and have a relationship with him. So, so Lord, um, that's my testimony. That's what I believe. And I surely thank you for making that known to many here. Uh, Lord, if there's anyone here who, who's still questioning um, things about you, Lord, I pray that you would do the same that you did for me. Open their heart. Let them see you. Help us as we have these conversations with those that question faith. Um, you do the heavy lifting, Lord. You open the hearts. You reveal truth. Um, it's your word. Use us, uh, our conversations, our um, the evidence that we see that leads us to, to faith. And may we see fruit in the lives of those we visit with those that we share reasonable answers to great questions. We pray for progress as the gospel goes forward through the body of Christ. May it happen amongst us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.